Money, money, money. Where would we be without money? And it seems like everybody could use more money. You know, when surveyed, most Americans say they could use more money and, if possible, would like to be rich. When asked what they thought it would take to be rich, most people said that they would have to make at least $100,000 a year or more. But if you want to be wealthy and not simply rich, according to Charles Schwab, a well-known investment group, your net worth would need to be about $2.6 million. Now, unfortunately, the median net worth or the 50th percentile of all Americans is only 97300 We could always use more money. But you know, and you've probably heard this before, those who have a lot of money are often quick to point out that money isn't everything. Researchers from New York University quite a while ago studied over 3,000 winners of lotteries from the time they were five years out from the lottery win and up to 22 years out from the lottery win. The researchers measured happiness, mental health, financial satisfaction, and overall life satisfaction. And they discovered that for those who won at least $100,000 or more in the lottery, happiness and mental health were not significantly impacted. It just may be true. Money can't buy you happiness. In fact, I know somebody whose, whose family did quite well in business, and this person is now worth a lot of money. And yet this person recently told me, the money feels like a burden. This person receives hundreds and hundreds of requests every year for money. And many of those requests represent noble causes. But it's a burden. What to do with all that money? Money's a tricky business. And Luke, the gospel writer, knows it. You know, of the four gospels, Luke has the most to say about money. Wealth, possessions. And he has the most to say, it seems, about poverty, hunger, the needy. Now, truth be told, when it comes to money, Luke's gospel can be tough. Already in chapter 1, Luke records Mary's response, the hearing that she was pregnant with child and that this child would be named Jesus. So she sings a song, Mary's song, and in that song, Mary sings this. God has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And then in Luke 6, where Jesus declares in a sermon, Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. And then later in that chapter, Jesus adds, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Later in chapter 9, Jesus tells a crowd, What does it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose yourself? 
And then near the end of the Gospel, chapter 18, Jesus is approached by a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know, obey the law, obey the Ten Commandments. To which the young ruler says, I do. And Jesus responds, well, then sell all that you have and give it to the poor. But, says Luke, the man went away sad, for he was very rich. Why is Luke so concerned about money and wealth? Well, it's because he's concerned about anything and and everything that can get in the way of discipleship, in the way of following Jesus. Maybe there's a key here in in chapter 9 of the Gospel. In chapter 9, verse 51, Luke writes this, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we know that in Jerusalem, Jesus will be rejected by his own people. Pilate will wash his hands of him, and he will be crucified, along with two criminals. And there they would hang, dying a slow and agonizing death. The soldiers would mock him, and his disciples were nowhere to be seen, except for a few of the women who stood at a distance and watched. Luke's description of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem comes just about in the middle of the 24 chapters. We're at a crossroads. Everything that Jesus has been saying and done is all now for one purpose, his calling, going to Jerusalem. He's the suffering servant, the crucified Messiah, but he's also the resurrected Lord, the Savior of the world. His face is set, determined. Everything here on out will serve one purpose, to obey the calling of his Father, even unto death. And so then in chapter 10, Jesus now gives his instructions to his disciples for the journey ahead. Like Jesus, they too must set their faces toward Jerusalem and beyond. They must be determined. Everything here on out should serve one purpose. To obey the calling of Jesus Christ on their lives. Even if it means death. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus tells his disciples, but the workers are few. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat whatever is offered you, and tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Followers of Jesus need to travel light. They need to have loose attachment to the things of this world, for the kingdom of God is near. And so chapter 16 and money. Chapter 16 has two parables about money and wealth. 
The first one is intended for Jesus' disciples. It has to do with a shrewd servant who made the most out of his money. The message here is pretty simple. Don't let money control you. You control money in service to Jesus. The second one is addressed to the Pharisees or some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And here is the story about the rich man and Lazarus. The first parable ends with Jesus saying this, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees were told were listening in on Jesus' teaching to his disciples. And when they heard that you can't love both God and money, they ridiculed Jesus. For, writes Luke, they were lovers of money. And that's when Jesus turns to them and says, okay, you love money? Let me tell you a story about a rich man and Lazarus. Now this parable, too, may seem straightforward. We had a nice condensed version in the children's message. But the details are worth pondering. The measure of the rich man's wealth is illustrated here by his dress and his food. He's wearing purple and linen. And in that day, only high-ranking officials or people within royal families could wear purple. In fact, the Romans set standards for who could wear purple and how much purple could be worn. The rich man lived in a house with a gate. It allowed security and privacy, a luxury only the very wealthy could afford. And then he feasted sumptuously every day. He wanted for nothing. This guy was wealthy. He was in Charles Schwab's multi-million dollar range. And then there's Lazarus. He's disabled. His entire body, we're told, is covered with sores. He's helpless. He's been dumped at the gate of the rich man. And now he begs for scraps from the man's table. It was common practice in that day for the wealthy to use bread like a napkin. As they ate and got grease or whatever on their mouth and hands, they would take bread, wipe their mouth and their hands, and then discard the bread. Lazarus was eating the man's used bread. And the verb to describe Lazarus eating is the same word used to describe animals eating. Lazarus was eating scraps like an animal. And then there are the dogs, most likely wild dogs. They're used to scrounging around in the garbage looking for food, and now they're licking Lazarus' sores as if he's so much garbage to be checked out. You know, it's interesting, this parable. These two men are profiled, but they, they never talk, do they? They never interact. 
The rich man doesn't even acknowledge Lazarus. He doesn't even seem to know his name. Their lives are far apart, separated by a rich man's table and gate. Lazarus dies and is carried by angels to Abraham's side. He was neglected by others, but now he is prized by God. The rich man dies too, and, well, he's buried, just buried. And there he is finally in hell. And the rich man is now tormented by fire. But then he sees Abraham with Lazarus at his side. And the man calls out to Abraham and asks if Lazarus, turns out he did know his name, if Lazarus could dip his finger in some water and just put a few drops on his tongue to give some relief from the fire. But then these almost chilling words there in hell, Abraham says, no. Child, remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, evil things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. At one time, a table and a gate separated them, although it didn't have to. And then judgment and torment separated them, and it must be so. Now, after all that, you have to wonder what those Pharisees were thinking. How is it that the Pharisees, who strive to keep the law like, like no other Jewish group, how is it that they could so blatantly give themselves over to the lustful pursuit of money and wealth, risking God's judgment? Why weren't they more like the shrewd servant in the first parable who made money but used it to serve God? And here we are again, perhaps, at another key. The law does not forbid the pursuit of money. Nor does Jesus. The law even suggests at times that money can be a sign of God's blessing on one's life. In Deuteronomy 28, we read this. If you fully obey the Lord your God, he will pour out blessings on you. Your crops, your livestock, your barns, everything you put your hand to will be blessed. Prosperity can be a blessing from God. But the law is also clear about the love of neighbor, about caring for the most vulnerable in our midst. How could the rich man not see his neighbor, the most vulnerable, when Lazarus was at his feet? How could the Pharisees love money after hearing? How could the Pharisees love money after hearing about Lazarus? Several years ago, I met a remarkable man. <clears throat> he was well into his 70s then, so I suspect he's well into his 80s now. He had been and is a very successful businessman, and he was a committed Christian. He told me that early on in his career, he had a knack for turning mediocre companies into very successful companies. In fact, he found himself in the business of buying up floundering companies and then turning them around for a profit. 
But also early on, he realized that with his success in business would come money, would come wealth. So he decided, along with his family, that he would never live off more than 10% of his income. He reasoned this way. He said, the Bible tells us to give tithe 10% and keep the 90. He said, but you know, what if I were to keep 10% and give the 90%? And then two, he said he'd never buy a new car. He said he'd never buy a new car. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all live off 10%. I bought a new car a year ago. But I am suggesting this. This man, as a successful person in life, knew that money is powerful, and so is wealth. It could be used for the glory of God, or it could be used to compete with God. He knew that you could not serve two masters. I want to close with one more illustration. And it's an illustration that I used when I preached here back in May. And so I think in terms of preaching, this will be the first time that I've turned right around and used the same illustration with the same group of people, but I just got to do it. You may recall last May, this past May, that I used an illustration from St. Gregory of Nyssa Church in San Francisco. It's an Episcopalian church, and because of that, it has a high liturgy and has a set of rich traditions that inform its life. And what makes this church, in part, unique is that it has an ancient architectural structure. The church is shaped in a circle, and the walls and ceiling are domed. And so it's almost like a bowl turned upside down. And the idea is that as you enter that sanctuary, you are put in motion, in circular motion, and there's no beginning and end to the walls or the ceiling or any of it. It, it, It's fluid. And what they do on Sunday mornings, they have their singing and their liturgies and so forth, and then they have the Lord's Supper every Sunday morning. And they don't sit for the Lord's Supper. They stand and they circle the Lord's Supper table, which is in the middle of the circle. And there they gather around the Lord's Supper table. And as the priest consecrates the bread and the cup, the priest then hands the bread and cup to the congregation. And they take it and receive it and then pass it to one another. And the bread and the cup make the circle. Now, St. Gregory of Nyssa Church also has a food pantry. But this food pantry, like a lot of churches, is not in the basement. It's not out of a truck or anything like that. It's not in an outbuilding on the property of the church. The food pantry is right there in the sanctuary. And so as people gather to receive the food they need, they are invited into the sanctuary, into their sacred space, through the front door. And the food lines the outer wall in that circle. And the Lord's table is there in the middle. 
and they are warmly greeted by the people of the congregation. They have an accordion player play this wonderful music, and there are lots of hugs and smiles and and greetings, and in come these people in need, and they begin to circle in the sanctuary, picking up the vegetables or bread or whatever it is they need, but they circle around the Lord's table in the middle, just like the congregants do on Sunday morning. And the people of St. Gregory think of it this way. God has given us out of God's abundance bread and wine. God gives us his son, body and blood. And as we feast on God's good gifts, we receive life, life eternal. We are blessed. And out of our abundance, we now give to others. And so as God gives out of his abundance, so too this congregation gives out of their abundance. And instead of a gate or a door and a table separating the people, this church sees the Lord's table as bringing people together in sharing and fellowship and blessing. That is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. We, like Jesus' disciples in Luke, have a high calling. We are on our way with Jesus. Let us be determined. Let us set our face to what matters most. As God blesses us, and out of our abundance, let us bless others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.